It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Amanda Littman, and this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount. My guest this week is David Brock. He's the founder of both Media Matters for America, a progressive media watchdog group, and American Bridge 21st Century, a democratic super PAC. I wanted to talk to David because one of the ongoing issues we come up against with this podcast is the failure for Democrats to build a broad media ecosystem that will go up against Trump. And Media Matters, while not exactly apples for apples, does a really good job of tracking what's going on on the Republican right and at least giving both reporters and activists the tools they need to combat it. And American Bridge is one of the largest spenders of ads and trackers and oppo research in a way that I thought was really interesting to ask David about how that even matters in a world where Republicans no longer feel shame. But before we get to my conversation with David, I want to talk about paid leave. Right now, the United States is the only industrialized nation in the world to not guarantee any paid leave for workers and one of only six total not to have any paid maternity leave. Only about 20 percent of private sector workers have access to paid family leave. There are a few states that have programs, California, New Jersey, Rhode Island, New York, Washington, D.C., and Massachusetts. But we know research has shown that paid family leave, paid maternity and paternity leave, helps parents establish bonds with kids. It improves on-time vaccination rates. It reduces infant hospital admissions. It improves health outcomes for elementary school kids. And for birthing parents in particular, it leads to lower rates of postpartum depression and improved physical health. And we know it helps the economy. Access to paid leave increases mother's labor force participation by 20% during the first year after birth. It is popular. More than 75% of voters support paid family leave. And it's been in the reconciliation bill. Joe Biden proposed a 12-week paid family leave program for all kinds of definitions of caretakers. Now, in order to reduce costs on this reconciliation bill, they have already reduced it to four weeks and motherfucking Joe Manchin still doesn't like it. Now, let's be clear. Globally, the average paid maternity leave is 29 weeks. The average paid paternity leave is 16 weeks. Four weeks is a fucking joke. Even after the best of circumstances, birthing can be a really traumatic process. You know, for birthing mothers, recovery can take at least six to eight weeks, often much more. Four weeks after a C-section, you're still iffy about bending over to pick up your own kid. And we've talked on the show about the child care crisis. You should go back and listen to the interview with Ai-jen Poo for more on that. But the total disregard for families, especially mothers, from day one is hard to deny. It's kind of unfathomable that with a Democratic president and a Democratic control of Congress, we can't pass an overwhelmingly popular policy that has no downsides, that the rest of the world has proven is possible, even beyond our pretty meager proposals, and that is good for women, for families and for the economy. I know there's a lot of reasons why the United States is a very singular outlier in this. Obviously, misogyny, racism, classism, and more all play a part. But I'd also want to point out, this is a really tough issue to organize around. 
the people for whom it's an urgent crisis, from the ones who need it the most right now, are the ones with the least time to show up, to call the members of Congress, to donate money, to demand attention. The people for whom it's number one are the ones we can't count on to make noise. They just got other shit to do. And more broadly, this is an indictment of how broken Congress is, how the filibuster prevents meaningfully popular legislation from getting passed, how the Senate is where good ideas go to die, how paid family leave is just one of many extremely popular issues where Congress can't get their shit together. You know, we're lucky to have people like Kirsten Gillibrand in the Senate fighting hard for this. And I'll admit, it's been cool to see from my vantage point looking at local cities and counties how they've been able to move the needle given their limited budgets and limited scope. But it's really not enough. And for what it's worth, it's not crazy to say that if we fail to pass paid family leave now, a savvy Republican will run on it in 2024. So that's cool. I will leave it there for now. Let's hear my conversation with David Brock. David Brock, welcome to Battleground. Thank you for having me. So you have been involved in political journalism for a long time. Part of the reason I really wanted to have you on the show is because you have really valuable insight on both the right wing and the conservative media, as well as sort of the left ecosystem of media in a way that most Democrats and progressives don't. So before we talk about your current projects, let's do a little bit of background. Yeah. For those who don't know you, can you tell me a little bit about your story? Yeah, sure. So I worked in uh, various ways in conservative media and conservative think tanks for probably about 15 years from the time I got out of college. I went to Berkeley and <laughs> I had a reaction against the left in Berkeley and came out of there as a raging conservative. Uh, I got my first job in the Washington Times in the mid 80s. And then I worked in various places, Washington Times, American Spectator Magazine, the Heritage Foundation, the kind of premier conservative think tank in Washington, and wrote some books and articles that got a lot of attention back in their day. One was a book that took Clarence Thomas aside on the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas hearings. Uh And then I did some early kind of investigative work for the American Spectator on the Clinton's history in Arkansas which was part of a a project that the magazine had called the Arkansas Project, which was essentially a dirt digging operation against the Clintons that was very well funded. And that started even before Bill Clinton won the presidency. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, years later, Hillary talked about a vast right wing conspiracy. And, you know, if you Google conspiracy, you'll see it means a wrongful scheme. Mm -hmm. That was you? That's what I think I was involved in. Yeah, I was in the belly of the beast during those years. And then I had a change of heart and mind around 1997, 1998, and I gradually broke ranks with the conservative movement in a series of articles that culminated in a book called Blinded by the Right. Mm -hmm. Um, People asked me, you know, was there one moment when you realized what you were involved in was not something you wanted to continue to be involved in? There wasn't one moment. It was a series of events. And it was really an ethical break more than it was an ideological break. So it mm-hmm. wasn't that I woke up one day and said, oh, supply side economics doesn't make any sense, even though it doesn't make any sense. That wasn't the motivating factor. It was really the character and integrity of the people I was working with and mm-hmm. what I thought that was doing to compromise my own integrity. And the long story short, I don't think it's controversial to say now or back then I think I was opening some people's eyes to it. But Mm -hmm. in conservative media, there's an incentive to put out misinformation and to essentially lie. And I got caught up in that and I got complicit in that. At a certain point, I couldn't do it anymore. 
And now this was pre-Fox News. This was pre all the conservative yeah. digital properties. But it was a forerunner of what was to happen later. I can say that I'm glad it was back in the late 90s that I broke with the right because eventually there was a train wreck coming. Yeah. And certainly by the time Trump came along, I likely would have ended up as a never-Trumper because that was probably be a step too far for where <laughs> I would have been. At least that's what I think. Who knows? <laughs> so then after writing Blinded by the Right, which was published in 2003, I started another book called The Republican Noise Machine. Uh -huh. And in writing that book, I got the idea that I could start an organization that might work against what I was describing in the book and that would essentially fight the conservative and Republican noise machine on a daily basis in real time through a, a website that we started, which was Media Matters. How has Media Matters changed since social media became a thing? Because I feel like that complicates the disinformation tracking quite a bit. It really does. I mean, they say that when you start a nonprofit, the goal should be to put yourself out of business yep. uh, because you've <laughs> solved the problem. Well, in that sense, I have to say, we haven't done that at Media Matters. Um, <laughs> we're still working on it. But, you know, I think the way it's changed is basically something like this. When I wrote The Republican Noise Machine, I basically posited three things about the, the media. Yeah. One was there was a powerful right-wing media, which at that point was more in the realm of talk radio than anything else. Uh -huh. And then the mainstream media was under constant pressure from the right wing to kowtow to right wing demands and to shape their coverage in ways that conservatives would like. And then you had progressive media, which back then was very little, if any, could you find progressive voices in the media. So a lot of that has changed. The landscape's changed pretty radically. On the right-wing side, I would say in some ways it's more powerful than it was back then because now you not only have talk radio and dominance of the right, but you have obviously Fox and imitators uh, of Fox on cable to the right. And then, as you mentioned, I mean, you have the entire digital yeah. space where conservatives have gotten a lot of traction. I think one thing we did do with the right-wing was by pushing back on it, we help prevent them from setting the media agenda for the rest of the press. Huh. Um, back when we started, there was a conveyor belt from the right wing right onto the network news. Um, and I think we disrupted that a lot. And you could see that, like years later, you could see that when Fox was really flogging the Benghazi scandal, so-called. And they really had trouble breaking out of the Fox bubble with that. And I think that was a, a lot of deterrence that Media Matters engaged in over those years. However, it's a powerful problem in terms of the propagation of misinformation. On the mainstream media, I think on balance, it's gotten better than the mm. environment was when I started. It's kind of a hot take. <laughs> yeah, well, the right wing really had a lot of say over what was going on in newsrooms at that time. And one of the ideas of Media Matters was to empower progressives to have their views heard inside newsrooms. And of course, progressives had a lot of issues with the media. There just wasn't a system in place for those to be heard. I mean, this was in the midst of the war in Iraq and disinformation from places like even the New York Times. So progressives had a lot of issues with the press. There was no system to have those voices heard. So we put that in place. And so today I think there is more balance because I do think that the media hears from progressives and hears from conservatives. And at the end of the day, at least in theory, that should give you a more balanced product. It doesn't always work out that way. But again, I think back in the day, the Sunday show commentary was very dominated by the right wing, even on the major networks. 
still a little bit of a problem on Meet the Press, particularly. Yeah. But there are progressive voices now heard on those panels, and progressives were really shut out at the time. And so that's another big change is on the progressive side, there is vigorous progressive media now, as you know, there are podcasts, there's MSNBC, and uh, a pretty vigorous digital presence from progressives too. You know, you mentioned sort of the cutting off of the conveyor belt from far-right media or Fox News to mainstream. It does seem like the conveyor belt has shifted from conservative media to mainstream to Reddit, Facebook to conservative media. Like the entire loop has shifted over to the right, at least internally for them, creating what I think is a really closed ecosystem of dis and misinformation. One of the things I really enjoyed about Media Matters coverage is tracking how something starts on the Internet, makes its way to Fox News, and then often in the Trump presidency would make its way into the White House and back around again. When you think about the interplay between these sort of networks, one, does tracking it matter? And two, like, how do you begin to intervene in that? Well, I do think tracking matters. As you said, we've invested in a lot of technology Mm -hmm. at Media Matters to be able to go deep inside the Internet to try to figure out what's being said and what's happening before it gets onto Fox. And Mm -hmm. so there are definitely occasions where you can try to nip something in the bud before it jumps over to Fox. You know, we had a strategic plan four years ago that talked about the threat of the Proud Boys, for example. So we were really ahead of a lot of what goes on online in terms of right-wing organizing and misinformation. And so I do think it's important to have that early warning system in place. It doesn't always work, but there are definitely mm-hmm. times when you can disrupt that. And I, I do think that just outing it as a service as well, because, you know, for propaganda to stop having its effects, it has to be recognized. Yeah. And so the first step is to call it what it is and recognize it. And then the second step would be to try to contain it so that it's not spread into the mainstream conversation. Battleground will be back with David Brock from Media Matters after a quick break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Battleground. Our guest this week is David Brock. When you think about the way that news consumers, the way that news consumers understand uh, mainstream media, they sort of at least studies have shown seem to view it as much more left leaning than I think a lot of Democrats would agree with and often might prefer that it was a little more left leaning. Is there some truth to that myth of left leaning mainstream media? And how has the effort of mainstream media to overcorrect for that, I think, has directly affected a lot of their yeah. coverage? Is there a way to push on that lever? I think that if you go back 40, 50 years, the media was somewhat, what would you say, um, <laughs> biased against conservatives, yeah. not yeah. necessarily liberal. 
But I think there was something to that. But that was in the Nixon years, and that was during the Vietnam War. And the conservatives organized starting in 1969 with some supporters of Richard Nixon into a group called Accuracy in Media. And uh-huh. in the 70s and the 80s, there was an intentional strategy to do what you said, which was to put pressure on the institutions of mainstream media and journalism to then bend over backwards the other way to accommodate the conservative viewpoints. And it worked. And mm-hmm. so I think there's no a validity to the claim today that the media has a liberal bias, <laughs> even though I think there was truth in it back in the day. I think if anything, there's still more things that go on, like giving voice to climate deniers yeah. into mainstream media. I think there's more of that that goes on than anything else. And so I think that makes a difference. Before I started Media Matters, I, I went around to people uh, in mainstream media and said, well, when you hear from these conservative groups, what happens? They said, well, there's a kind of form of self-censorship that goes on um, and um, yeah. because they're, they're afraid of the reaction. And so that's still out there. But I think it's been balanced a lot by active progressives who have legitimate concerns with the media and try to get those addressed. Well, and I do think that was something these Democrats ran into and in working with the media is the media holds Democrats to a higher standard. I think part of that is to sort of inoculate reporters themselves from being accused of being like too liberal or biased, which then ends up holding Republicans to almost no standards in the same process. And I don't know if there's a really good cultural way to fix that. I think you're right about the phenomenon. I mean, when we were forming Media Matters, the thing we looked at was the 2000 election and mm-hmm. the incredibly poor coverage of that race and the way that Al Gore was held, not only to a higher standard, but just garbage put out about him and mainstream media repeating it was one of the examples we used for what we were trying to correct for in the media. Mm -hmm. Have we had a lot of success with that? Uh, It's probably not so much. It's hard. um, Because then you go from 2000, go to 2016. And you see the way the email story dominated the news and you saw a lot of good, solid research on Trump and Trump's business practices that didn't get that kind of attention. Everything Trump did uh, was great for ratings. Hillary could set her hair on fire when she was talking about her platform and not get any coverage. So that's still rough. After Trump was elected, it was belated. But I mean, I think there's, there's been a lot of great journalism about Trump while he was president. There's no question about that. But the damage was done in 16, and the media hasn't really ever acknowledged their role. No, sure have not. And I think anytime we go into debriefs on the 2016 election, it's a piece of the puzzle as part of like how voters felt about Clinton, about Trump, especially when journalists are trying to like debrief on some of the ads and the way that voters felt and the shift from 2016 to 2020, they are entirely forgetting their role in the process. Right. I want to talk a little bit about Fox News. And in particular, as it relates to COVID, Fox News as a company has very strict vaccine guidelines. Over 90% of Fox Corporation employees are vaccinated. Uh, Trump was vaccinated early on. His wife was vaccinated. He, you know, at various points have encouraged people to get vaccinated. Although I think when he did so at one rally, he got booed. He took credit for developing the vaccines. And yet Media Matters published a report that Fox News has aired anti-vaccine segments in 99% of the days in the past six months. Why are they doing this? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, (laughs) So I think it's basically to stir up anti-government sentiment in the base of the party. I think that's really what's at the heart of it. Now, 
The other aspect is that there's definitely a conservative cohort that doesn't believe in science. Yep. And that's underneath some of this as well. So I think it's at least two things going on there. The hypocrisy is clear that these folks, I mean, I guess Tucker Carlson won't say whether he's vaccinated, but I mean, there's no question in anybody's mind. Yeah, he, he's absolutely got right, the vaccine. Exactly. So the thing is, when we started Media Matters, we sat in the room with a whiteboard trying to figure out what was the mission statement. And we came up with, oh, we're going to monitor the media for misinformation. And at that time, people were like, what's misinformation? And now it's in Joe Biden's State of the Union. It's that big of a problem. It's one of the biggest problems we have in the culture and politics. What's really dangerous right now is the misinformation is a matter of life and death, literally. Mm-hmm. And so what Fox is doing is not just bad. It's unconscionable, really. Yeah. It does seem like, and you, you got at this a little bit, like Fox News, other conservative outlets, they aren't always just picking narratives and stories that they want their audiences to hear. Um, they are picking what their audience wants to hear and sort of vice versa. You know, another example in 2015, early 2016, during the Republican primaries, Murdoch, Fox News did not really like Trump that much. Once it became clear he was going to win the nomination, they went all in. Um, It does seem like part of the problem, and I think this is true with conservative media and also with media at large, it's not the industry, it's the audience. There is a huge sentiment for anti-women, anti-immigrant, anti-Black, anti-science, anti-elitist messaging. And I'm not sure how progressives can solve for that, Yeah, how media can solve for that. that. That is really a tough question. I think that you're right. It's always a question, you know, was the tail wagging the dog or how is that really mm-hmm. working? Is Trump picking up his messaging from Fox or is Fox following Trump? It's all a little bit of both. But the reality is Fox serves a market mm-hmm. and that market is just as you just described it. Now, what can progressives do? I mean... Progressives now have their own form of media. It's very different, though. I mean, yeah. there have been discussions, and I've been in them for years, about can we have a progressive Fox News? And the reality is we can't win, no. by, <laughs> we can't win by copying them because the truth is our audiences don't respond to those kinds of fear-mongering. Too diverse, typically too broad, yeah. Not too emotional content. And certainly they don't lap up misinformation. I mean, the audience on Fox at some level knows that what they're hearing isn't true. That's got to be. But it's almost like a defiance of whatever they consider to be liberalism or liberal media that they brazenly put out the misinformation. And there's no real shame attached to it. And they just keep going. How much are you guys paying attention to YouTube? So we do monitor all, you know, social media. And we have worked to keep some of the worst off YouTube, Mm. for sure. We do work with Facebook and YouTube and Instagram and, you know, we monitor all that. We monitor hate speech and harmful speech on those platforms. Mm -hmm. Some of the work we do is behind the scenes and some of it is publishing studies or bringing the right to Facebook or right to YouTube and showing them, well, here are the 200 things that are violating your own policies Mm -hmm. and trying to get some change at that level. It's not as effective to just chase every lie. At some point, you need some real change. And we need change uh, in these big tech companies. We've got to have some kind of regulation, as you saw with the Facebook whistleblower, which I thought was very compelling testimony. There's got to be some answers to these problems of algorithms rewarding the worst information and the worst behavior. To that point, part of the reason that you see the top 10 lists of what's going viral on Facebook this week, and it's almost without a doubt nine 
crazy far-right conservatives and usually like one cute animal thing. Absolutely. It would make sense, as you say, that the Republican audience eats up conspiracy theories. They love sensationalized disinformation, the simplistic, emotional, sort of fear-inducing messaging is often the stuff that's most viral and then perpetuates the algorithm of people like this that's keep serving them more. Right. Media Matters, as you've explained, acts as a watchdog and a fact check on that. But before truth puts its pants on in the morning, the lies are halfway out the door. Right. How do you operate in an environment where the algorithm and the technology so clearly benefits one side? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, the answer is, as I said, we need some kind of more systemic policy change, ultimately, mm-hmm. uh, because the chasing of each individual while Eileen has so much effect at this point. Yeah. Um, the rules basically are rigged against, you know, I think they're rigged against small d democracy, really, and having a, a democracy that functions properly. Mm-hmm. So what can we do? We can put pressure on Facebook. And we have done that. And we've done it. Mm-hmm. We've done a lot of organizing around it. We were really key, I think, to keeping Trump off Facebook, which shut out an awful lot of misinformation. Once Trump was shut out, uh, a vast amount of misinformation went out with him. Yeah. So there are things you can do. And I think organizing and I think protesting and I think even letting people inside Facebook know how consumers of news feel has an impact as well on the employees. More of my conversation with David Brock when Battleground returns. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. And we're back with David Brock. We have reached a point where the Republican Party does not care about the truth. Um, Its members, both elected and the media, have decided shame is not an emotion they are willing to engage with. And I think this is one of the repercussions of Trump of like called out for a lie, called out for a gaffe, called out for a scandal. You you post through the pain. How can we effectively call out leaders in power who do not seem to respond to shaming? Yeah. That's a great question because things have changed somewhat with the phenomenon of Trump and Trump supporters. Yeah. You know, when we started Media Matters, we used the word lie on the website and people were shocked by it. (laughs) It was like in polite behavior, you don't say that. Now it's well established that we have at least a pretty big segment of the Republican Party willing to engage and believe in lies. And the mm-hmm. thing is, the base rewards the behavior, it seems. Yeah. Because, you know, an audit from Arizona can say that Biden won and Trump can go out and lie blatantly about it and the audience eats it up. So there is a different incentive structure now. And the stigma of you're a liar doesn't sting as much as it used to. I think there's probably no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we worked really hard to get newsrooms to adopt headlines when covering Mm -hmm. Trump that pointed out that he was lying when he was lying. 
the statistic is something like two thirds of people only read the headline of a story. Yeah. And so early on in the Trump administration, when the AP and others were just parroting what he was saying, which is what you usually do with the president. You usually don't have to mm-hmm. fact check in the headline. Um, what they <laughs> yeah. were doing was forwarding the misinformation. And so we worked with them and other newsrooms to adopt guidelines that said, you know, if he's saying something that is a lie and that's false, you have to work that into the headline in some way. And so then we went back and studied it six months later, and there was a lot of progress on that front. So basically, you just have to keep fighting this. So it's not necessarily that the shaming politicians may not work, but shaming the reporters covering the politicians can work. I think that's right. Yeah, there's probably no shaming of the politicians themselves. And these are a lot of people in safe districts. You know, the Senate report that came out that showed Mm -hmm. uh, one of the members of Congress from Pennsylvania was really one of the coup plotters. And where are the consequences for something like that? And the answer is they're in such safe districts. It's really hard. Where is the accountability? It's really hard. Yeah, it is a, um, I think we've talked about it before, sort of the Swiss cheese model of Republicans are protected both by the media ecosystem, gerrymandering, voter suppression, technology companies privileging their information, you know, all of that combines to create a space where there is no accountability. Yeah, right. And it's a structural disadvantage that we have. Yeah, (laughs) super fun. We're so screwed. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We've been talking about media matters, but you're also the founder of a couple of super PACs, including American Bridge 21st Century. Give us the summary. Sure. What is American Bridge? We started American Bridge in 2011. It was after the 2010 uh, midterm, which was a debacle for Democrats, as I'm sure people remember. Mm -hmm. One of the things that happened in 2010 was Citizens United came down from the Supreme Court and it opened the door to the formation of super PACs. And Republicans like Karl Rove moved in very quickly and established a network of super PACs for the right wing and the Republican Party. And Democrats, because we don't like super PACs and hated Citizens United, didn't respond in kind. Mm -hmm. And so after the 2010 election, we were the first to plant a flag and say, well, if we finally elect the kind of judiciary that we should have, we won't have super PACs to worry about. And when we have real campaign finance, great. But until then, we can't cede the playing field to the Republicans on that level. Mm -hmm. And so we built some party infrastructure. Obviously, super PACs do not coordinate with campaigns. They're outside infrastructure around campaigns that aid campaigns. American Bridge is a fairly simple formula. The basis of it is opposition research, which is everything knowable about candidates from soup to nuts. We do research, we send video trackers to events. We listen into their local TV and radio appearances. Mm. We're looking for things where they're talking out of both sides of their mouth, or they say something that's extremely offensive that may not be widely reported. And then we try to get attention to that And then we have a paid advertising program that we put into place after Trump won the election. We realized that there was a limit to opposition research in the era of Trump Mm -hmm. because there was no one story that was going to bring him down. And so we spent about $75 million last year to try to help elect Biden. We did it in a very targeted way. We worked in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, and we only were working on Obama-Trump voters to see if we could get what we were calling Trump defectors to uh, come over to Biden. So it was a small subset of the electorate in those states. It was rural, non-college educated whites in 77 counties. We were basically, what James Carville says is, we were trying to lose less badly. Yep. So, you know, instead of 85-15, do it 75-25 or, you know, 70-30. Run up the score. Exactly. 
and it was a margins game. Obama ran rural programs. Yep. Hillary did not, which was interesting and significant because she lost a lot of the vote there. Biden came back. Trump lost eight points among those non-college educated whites in the three states we were working in. Um, Trump's pollster wrote a memo saying that was a significant factor in the loss of the election. When you think back over your, now I guess more than 20, almost 20 years yes. for those who have engaging in the Democratic yeah. Party, what would you, knowing hindsight is 2020, what do you wish you'd done differently? What do I wish I had done differently? Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's a really good question. Um, I guess, I mean, in the time that I've been working in progressive politics, um, I don't know that there is anything I would have done differently. I certainly have the regrets I had of being involved in the conservative world that I was in for all those years. And, you know, sometimes I do think, what would life have been like if I never got caught up in that? I, I kind of compare the conservative movement to something like a cult. Mm-hmm. And I got drawn in and had some terrible experience. But what I tried to do is draw something good out of the bad. And so in the time, the almost 20 years now that I've been working in Rest side, that's been my guiding thing is that I will try to, you know, continue to try to do some good out of what was a bad situation. But I'm pretty happy with the work I've done. And I don't know that I, <laughs> I would do anything that differently. I suppose that if you had to think of something, we fell victim to the same Democratic underestimation of Donald Trump in 16. Mm-hmm. We had two super PACs going and did everything we could to try to elect Hillary. But I still think that there was research left on the table about Trump that wasn't put into paid advertising that might have done something. So there are some things there, I think, that would be cause for maybe revisiting some of the strategies around 2016. I want to end by talking a little about one of my favorite topics, which is the sort of complicated role that money and donors play in determining Democratic Party strategy, which then often ends to us losing. We have talked a lot about the ways in which Democratic donors, the major funding base, often has an affinity for the shiny, flashy thing, which is often either the presidential or ads, whether it's online or on TV. That is then further accentuated by consultants who are driven to encourage more ads to get some of the money of the TV by. But also, if you want to be a grown-up in politics and still work in politics, you often have to work as a consultant. So it's a complicated, messy ecosystem. And that a lot of that money or even some of that money being going to build sustainable infrastructure, especially stuff that focuses on local politics, especially stuff that focuses on things like state legislatures and school boards and election administrators, but also rural organizing year round would probably yield more long term sustainable power and also win up the ballot. You straddle a pretty unique position, I think, within this conversation of running a super PAC or a couple of them and running sustainable infrastructure, which is what I think Media Matters is at this point. It is progressive or left-leaning infrastructure. How do you think about this argument and the broader democratic funding predicament? Yeah, well, that's a great question. So I think that you are right that Broadly speaking, and by and large, the Republican and right-wing funding is more strategic, it's more consistent, and there's more of it. Yep. And I have faced that in trying to build things on the progressive side for all these years. As you said, I mean, we have built successful, sustainable organizations, and I'm very grateful to donors for that. Mm -hmm. But it can be definitely short-sighted. It can be giving in the moment. It can be given for emotional reasons rather than more strategic reasons. I totally agree with you that we don't do a lot of work down ballot. We do a little, but that's an area of complete underinvestment that the Edgar Gillespie 10-year plan to do what they did 
that culminated in 2010 uh-huh. was really smart. He knew that the state legislative races were not expensive as an investment, and they mm-hmm. went out and did it, and they succeeded. And so I'll give you a current example. Yep. And Virginia is going to be a huge election for Democrats, I think, in a number of different ways. As a bellwether for the midterm, I think that if for some reason legislation doesn't pass before the Virginia election, it'd be very hard to pass anything if Democrats lose. Yeah. I think if Terry loses in Virginia, that will have an effect on the uh, frontline members in the House. Maybe some decided not to run. So it has a lot of effects. And I do think it has not been easy to get donor interest focused on Virginia. And it's because it's not a federal race. Some, for whatever reason, may not love Terry McAuliffe. That's all, you know, ridiculous, I think. I think that the issue is it's a critical election and literally people are, you know, I'm not interested in Virginia. Well, how could you not be interested in Virginia? So that's a frustration and there are some frustrations along the way and that kind of thing happens. But, um, you know, has it gotten better over the years? Probably. A chronic area of underinvestment is media itself. And and that's a constant frustration as well. I don't want to necessarily harp on the negative, but it is difficult, particularly in a for-profit sense of starting media businesses. It's not so easy uh, to make that sale. There've been efforts over the years to do it that have not been so successful. So that's an area that I would like to continue to work on and hopefully, you know, get some critical mass there and actually start to, in a real way, level the playing field with the right on the media front. I do think Virginia, and I want to come back to Virginia over and over again over the next month or so, because we are at a real risk of losing the Virginia state legislature. Yeah. We're at risk of losing Virginia governorship. It's not just the political ramifications of that, which you very eloquently laid out. It's like the Virginia state legislature expanded Medicaid to more than 400,000 Virginians. And if Republicans take control, they can rule that back. Right. And that hurts people. That kills people. Yeah. Glenn Youngkin doesn't believe in vaccines. That kills people. Right you know, read for something, my organization is working heavily yeah. in Virginia and it's, I'm very anxious about this. So thank you for bringing that up because I agree with you. It's a really good prime example of the ways in which Democratic funders are just missing the trees to see the big forest, yeah. whatever the expression right. is. They're missing the right. point here. Right. <laughs> David, thank you so much for this conversation and I appreciate you taking the time. Oh, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much to David Brock for joining me on Battleground this week. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a great rating and a golden review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Margot Gray researched this episode. Jessica Williams is our associate producer. Tara Ottavino is our producer and story editor. And Christian Castro-Rossell is our executive producer.